I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll look at the first five verses of the fifth chapter of Romans under the heading of justification. So what? Justification. So what? From Romans chapter 5. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here ends the reading of God's Word this morning. My most dear friends, I think if we were to sum up the first four chapters of Romans in one word, we could do it, and that word would be justified. Justified. That God in His sovereignty has looked upon fallen humanity, and His response is not that He is cold and austere, but His response is grace. That anyone who trusts in the finished work of Jesus is made just. Justified. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. This is the jewel of the church's crown. This is the glory of of the church's message. It is the content of all that we say. It is the reason we are here this morning to worship the God who has made us right with Him by faith. But I want to ask a provocative question this morning. So what? Does justification change anything about the lives that we live right now. See, if we are honest with ourselves this morning, our justification, our right standing before God can sometimes become a Sunday truth, but not a midweek reality. What does it mean to be justified on Monday morning? to be a justified tradesman or businessman, a forgiven farmer, a Christian mother. And doesn't it really come to a head when we endure suffering in this life? What does justification do for the suffering? Paul makes a very profound teaching in Romans chapter 5. If you have an ESV Romans journal, which we distributed here at Trinity 
you might want to put this as the heading for chapter 5. Justification changes things. Justification really does change things. Paul in these next few chapters is going to present faith in God, not just as faith or a life under God, not as just life from God or even for God, but he presents a faith in God as life with God. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. If you flip one chapter over to Romans chapter 6, it says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him. Verse 8 even as well. If we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. Simply put, knowing Jesus has a bearing upon your life beyond the walls of the church. In the words of the late Tim Keller, justification makes all the difference in our lives. Not just how we get to heaven, but it changes how we act. It changes how we feel. It changes our outlook in good times and in bad times. That's the so what of justification. I want to show you four things this morning. That in light of our justification, there are four blessings that we enjoy right now as Christians. Paul enumerates them in these first five verses in Romans 5. They are blessings of peace, blessings of access, the blessing of hope, and the blessing of love. That's peace, access, hope, and love. The first blessing that Paul says justification brings is that of peace. And every single one of us in this room desires peace. Whether it's peace at home, peace at work, or if you're a mom or a dad, just a little peace and quiet. The more busy life gets, the more we desire peace. But the peace that the Apostle Paul is speaking of is not just a therapeutic or an emotional peace, like peace that comes from yoga or essential oils, or a walk in the woods that calms the mind. But when the Scriptures speak of peace, it actually speaks of our, what we call, objective status. Or it speaks of our condition. It's speaking of the circumstance of our life. Not just our emotions. Paul, look, or Paul says, look with me at verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking in relational terms. Not emotions, but it's peace with God through Christ. Now, I'm only 27 years old. And in my short life, I have heard more people speak about peace in the last few years than any other years I can remember. 
with the COVID-19 pandemic and now also a war in Eastern Europe, in the Ukraine, there is more of a rhetoric around the subject of peace than I've ever seen before. You will often hear people say things such as, make peace, not war, right? But when somebody says we need peace, whether it's differing political views, differing views medically, differing views nationally, there implies that there is a hostility. It implies that there is war between two parties. And I don't think that Paul is using that term aimlessly here this morning. Because the Bible does teach that in man's natural condition, we are in fact hostile to God. Remember, Romans describes our nature, it begins by saying that we refuse to honor Him, we refuse to manifest gratitude, we exchange the truth for a lie, we engage in idolatry. I don't know about you, but this sounds like war. War with God. And what's even scarier is that the Bible also describes Not just us against God, but it even describes God at war with man. In Psalm 7, it says that the Lord draws back His bow and is ready to fire upon sinners. Even Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Doesn't Paul say that God is presently pouring His wrath against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Congregation, there's a cosmic battle going on in our world. You may not know it, but there is a fight. There is a war between sinful man and holy God. But Romans 5 says that there is a ceasefire. There is a way to be reconciled through the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice with me in Romans chapter 5, if you look at that first verse, it says, we have been justified. It's in the past tense. That when we put our faith in Jesus, we don't have a prolonged wait for justification, but the moment we believe, Paul is intimating, and trust in God, God declares over you peace. You have to think about this in connection to Romans chapter 1. Flip with me if you have your Bible open. In Romans chapter 1.18, it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But if you trust in Christ this morning, peace. Look at verse 21 of Romans chapter 1. They knew God, but they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him. You trust in Him. The declaration is peace. 
They ex- we exchange the truth for a lie. We choose idolatry. But if you trust in Christ, hear the declaration this morning, peace with God. In the cross, God puts down the bow that He describes in Romans 7. Or excuse me, Psalm 7. The wrath is diverted. The war is over. There is peace with God. There is a strong contrast between earthly peace and divine peace. One of the illustrations I came across while I was studying for this sermon, a famous illustration of earthly peace is when Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister of England during the uh, early days of World War II, there's a famous photo of him after a meeting with Adolf Hitler and they uh, reached some form of agreement. He's standing on a balcony and he says, we have achieved peace in our time. And at that exact moment, Nazi Germany was organizing the Blitzkrieg into Eastern Europe. While he was declaring earthly peace, there was no peace. My point is this, peace in the world is fragile. We know that. How many of us have been woken up from a peaceful sleep by a crying baby? Peace is fragile. We're having a good day at work and a coworker ruins it. Peace is fragile. In this world, when one war ceases, another begins. But the peace that Paul is speaking about this morning is an eternal peace. It's a peace that rests in the finished work of Jesus. Remember when Christ was on earth, He was speaking to His disciples about the cross In John 14, he was about to die and he says these words, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. And it's obvious that Christ isn't speaking about earthly peace, isn't it? He would still be crucified. Just a few chapters later. His disciples, would, many of them, would be martyred. Even Christians today are called to lay down their lives for the sake of Christ. But when Christ said, peace I leave you, He's talking about an eternal spiritual peace that rests in the it is finished of the cross. Because when Christ cried out, it is finished upon that cross, He was saying, I paid for your sins past, present, and future. That the enmity with God, God's war between man and Him was finished and it is a peace that cannot be revoked. It is a peace that cannot be reneged. It is a peace that cannot be changed. When God enters into a peace treaty with His people, it's a permanent peace. And it's that peace, Paul says, that changes your life. See, one other aspect I want to bring out about this word peace before we move on is that there is a strong connection between our right standing before God and feeling peace in this life. Did you catch that? 
there is a strong connection between our right standing with God and feeling peace. Remember that in Jesus' life, He often met people who were fearful, demon-possessed, in pain, and He gave them peace. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He's speaking of peace. When Jesus forgave a sinful woman, He said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus wants to give you peace this morning. But we know how to lose it, don't we? How many of us go through life feeling tense when we feel a threat? Angry when we lose. Depressed when we are mistreated. The fact is that our consciences are not always at peace. My friends, if you don't have peace with morning, you need to hear what Paul is telling you. You, or what, excuse me, let's read it. We have peace. Present tense. Right now, you have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have that positive, all-embracing, relational status with God this morning. That what gives a true feeling of peace is not about how others feel about you. What gives a true feeling of peace is not about how things are going this morning. What gives the true feeling of peace is about how God feels about you. That's the first blessing of justification. God has a positive, all-embracing, peaceful relationship with you. So the application this morning is that the greatest threat to your peace as a Christian is not circumstances in the world. It's not war. It's not poverty. The greatest threat to your peace is sin. Isn't it interesting, it's a stroke of irony that Satan actually uses peace to try to tempt us to sin. Have another drink, says Satan. It'll bring you peace. He tempts us to vanity. He tempts us to substance abuse. He tempts us to lust as presenting them as havens of peace. Here you will find rest from the world, says Satan. But don't you and I both know that sin only brings more restlessness, more chaos, less peace. David says this in Psalm 32. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. Sin brings no peace. God brings peace. Let's move to our second point. The Apostle then speaks of access in verse 2. He says, through Him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That word access means to stand before God without 
fear means to stand before God without fear. And by implication means without fault. To stand before Him without fear of Him finding something wrong with me. And I think what Paul is doing by using this word is he's reminding us of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Who could stand before the presence of the Lord and be in communion with Him without any fear, without any wondering if God would find something wrong with them. And it says, the Bible tells us they rushed to have communion with Him. The Jews talk about communion with God as the greatest thing that someone can experience in this life. Access. Perfect communion. Yet even for Adam and Eve, this access didn't last forever. But in their sin, God drove them from their presence, His presence and the rest of the Old Testament is full of pictures of access denied. The first mention of a sword in the Old Testament is when God placed a cherubim, an angel, at the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword, it says, to keep them from His presence. Access denied. Think of Moses on Mount Sinai. He goes up into the presence of God, but it says that no one else may touch the mountain lest they be executed. Access denied. Think of the veil of the Old Testament tabernacle. Only one person per year, the high priest, could go into the presence of God and we'll learn about this evening. They had to be clothed in the blood of an animal in order to be in His presence, but nobody else could go in there. Access denied. That's the Old Testament. Picture over and over again, there is no access for sinful people into the presence of God. But for those who are justified, if you are justified this morning, are you a sinner? I want you to answer that question. And you'll say, well, yes, I still struggle with my sins, but you need to take Romans seriously this morning. Paul has just told you, your sins have been forgiven past, present, and future. That God looks upon this congregation trusting in Christ as if you had never sinned nor been a sinner. Christian, access approved in Christ. Access granted in Jesus. You can come into the presence of God. You have access to His presence. There is no more veil. There is no more Mount Sinai. The blood of Christ has doused the flaming sword of the cherubim. And we have access, Paul says, by faith. Allow me to get into the Greek a little bit here. This is what we call the perfect tense. It means it's a completed action in the past, but it has ongoing relevance today. It's completed, but it still matters. 
Because of Jesus' work, Paul is saying, we always and ever will have access to God. That for those who trust in Jesus, they will never be denied God's presence again. In Jesus, here's the application, my friends. You will always have access to God's throne room. You don't need to be in the church to be in God's throne room. You don't need to be in a certain posture. You don't need to pay money. But whether you're in the church, at home, in a hospital bed, wherever you might be, God's throne room is your great privilege. Access granted. I debated this week whether or not I wanted to touch this issue, but I decided I'm going to. There can sometimes be a tradition in our circles where we trust in Jesus, but we do not trust Him enough to have access to the presence of God. And I'll show it to you this way. Maybe some of you have seen or in your own heart feel, I trust in Jesus, but I do not feel worthy to go to the communion table. This is a common issue in our Reformed churches. You need to hear what Paul is saying if you feel like I am justified but not worthy. He is saying, you are worthy because you are clothed in the blood of Christ. You are not worthy because you are perfect. You are not worthy because you are good. But you are worthy because of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says, if you are clothed in the blood of Jesus, you should hasten to draw near. Come, says our form. Come to the table. Rush to be in the presence of God. Desire to be in the presence of God. It's one of the greatest blessings that we have. Let's now talk about the subject of hope, which is one of the most rich terms in the Bible. But it's also one of the most misunderstood terms in the Bible. See, the common understanding of hope is that there's an element of doubt involved, right? When we say, I hope for something... We don't always think it'll come true. I'll give you an example. If someone was to say, I hope the Tigers win the World Series. They're describing what they wish or desire to happen, but there is certainly no assurance that it will happen. Gotcha. But this is not the way that the word functions in the New Testament. Instead, when the New Testament uses the word hope, it speaks of a certainty of the future. Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Hope is not taking a deep breath and hoping things will turn turn out all right. Hope in the Bible is an assurance that God will make things right. This is the third blessing of justification. Paul says you've been given hope this morning. And that hope is so certain 
hope is so real and will come to pass, he says, look at verse 2, we can rejoice in glory, but not only this, Romans 5 verse 3 says we can also rejoice in our suffering. Here's where we typically stop tracking with Paul. Peace? Okay. I'll take it. Access? Alright, I'm with you. Hope in suffering? There's nothing more unnatural than to enjoy afflictions or trials. As human beings, we desperately try to avoid them. But Paul is not a masochist. He's not saying that suffering is fun in Jesus or that it's a pleasurable experience, but he is saying we can still have hope even when we suffer. We were given a new perspective because no matter what happens to us in our lives, that no matter what suffering comes our way, they will never be able to take our hope. That if you are justified this morning, the Bible says you have found the pearl of great price. And no matter how much pain you may go through, no matter how many bad things may come to you in your life, these are not worthy to be compared to the joy that you will receive in Christ. This world can take a lot from you. It can take your riches. It can take your family. It can take your security. They can even take your heads. The Bible says they, will, they can never take your hope. And notice, Paul says about the word suffering, it actually starts a chain reaction. Verses 3 and 4. Look at them with me if you will. He says, suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. We can, once we are justified, rejoice even when people slander us and wound us. You can have joy in pain and suffering. We can glory in tribulation when we look through our trials to Jesus Christ. And Paul is speaking here from experience. Nobody knew suffering for Christ better than Paul. 2 Corinthians 11, five times I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes, three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea. All of his life was full of suffering, or at least after he knew the Lord Christ. But he believed in the sovereignty and the providence of God. There are no accidents in this world. And even when we endure pain and tribulation, we can glory in them, not because we enjoy them, but because we know that there will come from them a beneficial result. Paul says, suffering leads to more hope. I like the way Sproul puts it. He says, tribulation puts muscle 
on the soul. If we had an easy life, there would be no character. Character is not produced without pain. Even Christ built character through His suffering. But when we cling to the hope of God and He brings us through another trial in this life, He is forming our character into the character of Christ. That's why we can be joyful. That's why we can rejoice. Even when we endure rejection and persecution and pain because God has your ultimate good in mind, the salvation of your souls. And He will not disappoint. The ESV says in verse 5, He will not put us to shame. One of the more challenging things we can go through in life is when we invest in something and then it falls apart. Have you ever experienced this? When a business fails. When a relationship fails. It's almost like we feel like we've been dashed We've been pulled apart in pieces. God says if you put your hope in Him, if in life's trials you look to Him, He will never disappoint you. He will never shame you for putting your confidence and trust in Him. He always holds you in the palm of His hands. He will not let you down. The flip side is this. If we trust in Jesus or anything but Jesus for our confidence, we will be let down and we will be embarrassed. Hope in Christ is the only thing that has never let anyone down. Friends will cancel their reservations, work may let you fall through the cracks. Yet the hope that we have in the glory of God and His ultimate victory will never fail. Take note with me how often Paul speaks of rejoicing in God. We said that Paul experienced much suffering, but Paul was also a man of much rejoicing. He sang to God hymns of faith in the prison. He learned to be content with the thorn. He was willing to be shipwrecked three times because of the hope he had in Christ. The final blessing I want you to see this morning, and we'll go very quickly here, is the blessing of love. Paul says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that has been given to us. He's not describing your love for God. He's describing God's love for you. And is he describing here a small portion? A little bit? I think the language communicates that God has lavishly, greatly poured out His love here. A few moments ago we said, What brings peace into our life is not how others feel about you, but how God feels about you. What you need to hear, my friends, this morning is that God loves you so much He gave His Son. 
And you cannot do anything to make God love you less. Nor can you do anything to make God love you more. But the love that He's given you in Christ is perfect. This, too, is in the perfect tense in the Greek. Meaning it was completed in the past at the cross, but its effect still goes on. His love will always be with you. It will never waver. It will never change. He will always love His people in Christ. Justification. So what? Keller is right. Justification changes everything. Christ is our peace with God. He is our access to God. He is the hope that gets us through life's trials. And He is also the love that satisfies our souls. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we give You thanks for the justification that You've given us in Jesus Christ. May we not be counted as those who hear the message, but question its relevance. Lord, Your justification is so good, and it's so free, and it's so sweet. We give You thanks for it. We pray, God, that You would encourage us today with its effects. That we would go this place saying with the psalmist, it was good to be in the house of the Lord, for I learned of my Savior again. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.